Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. David Proden, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. Thank you to John Grant and the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California, for airing the Safety Doc Podcast, 2 p.m. PST daily, the405media.com. Today, I am very excited to have a different perspective on the show to talk to someone who is closer to all the craziness that's happening in our K-12 school system. Nick Shulander is a 21-year-old guitar-playing digital marketer and mechanical engineering student. He has taught two programs helping people to understand digital marketing so they can either promote their own small business or get jobs marketing for other people. He also has his own YouTube channel where he interviews other successful marketers and business owners. So because he's so young, Nick has been able to see firsthand the type of fortifications schools invest in, as well as how those fortifications are perceived by the students themselves. A spoiler alert. Spoiler. Dun, 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 dun. It's not always a pretty picture, folks. Welcome to the show, Nick Shoelander. Thanks for the intro, Doc, and thanks for having me on. So, Nick, in Wisconsin, um, we've just come off of a, a crazy week of back-to-back shootings in schools. It was a school resource officer uh, discharging a weapon at a student, two different schools. One student had a pellet gun, um, was attacking uh, another student, had a knife. And school safety, as, as you know, um, this is a this is kind of the narrative right now in, in schools. You've, you've lived through this. Yeah. So um, let's... Let's talk about when you were in school. So the time frame, 2012 to 2016. Um, describe the safety measures, the fortifications installed in your school. And you're, you're telling me kind of right around that 2013-14 school year for you, things changed in your yeah. school. So tell me about that. Well... Yeah, so just for some context for you guys watching, I went to school in western Washington state, kind of like the, you know, Seattle, Federal Way, Tacoma area. And right around like my sophomore or junior year, which would have been like 2013 or 14 or so, they started going what I described to you as all in. Like they had these, let's see, we had some metal detectors on some entrances. We had, I could have sworn we had bollards, at least some some of the main areas of the school um the other thing is i know a lot of the outside edges of the building had bulletproof windows because they made a big deal of that um and then what they also did is i'll show a map in a little bit but they had multiple entrances to the school but in my freshman year we were allowed to come in and go from those entrances no problem but they just started locking them so that okay that's kind of like the top down view right which right now it's like Locking the, the doors, okay, That you might think that's fine, but keep in mind, it's like they're only locked from the outside. Someone on the inside, like the students who hang out in those areas, could easily just like open the door when they see there. 
like I hung out in one of those areas, like when I was waiting to go to class. Yeah. And there'd be other students that would come in through there. It would be locked, but I'll just be like, oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so right. already right. you can start seeing the problems here. Right. Um, I, I've gone to so many schools, uh, you know, I've done walkthroughs and, and see doors propped. And one of the, the most unusual was a few months ago, and it was different shoes. Um, so it was like the first set of doors had two different shoes, and then the next set had another couple shoes and, and doors being propped, systems being fatigued. So your school, give us some context in the size of the, the school. Um. It's a little bit hard to do because I haven't been to a ton of different high schools, but I'd say it was like a decently sized school, kind of in, it's pretty, it's like a suburb area because Federal Way is like pretty close to Seattle and Tacoma. So not like urban, but not rural. Um, it was made for, I think, like twelve to 1,500 students. But by the time I was there, I don't know what it's like now. My teachers would say, yeah, our enrollment is like in the early 2000s. So okay. right so even back when I was there a few years ago, like it was not meant for the amount of students it has now. Hence so, why they kept adding portables. Right. So so um, over two thousand students now, you know, that that gets into the category of, of a larger high school. So oh, okay. um, yeah, some some school districts, depending upon where you're at in the in the you know, United States, they could be K-12 in one building. <laughs> um, in Wisconsin, we have a K-12 district on an island, Washington Island, on less than 100 students K-12. So, yeah, 2,000, that's a, that's a pretty significant um, structure. But you just mentioned something. You, you talked about portable classrooms, so adding portable classrooms. And people forget about portable classrooms. <laughs> Nick, actually, there was a study out in Washington State, and they talked about the portable um classrooms in this in study and they said basically it's the lowest bidder you know because the school only wants them for that a short sounds. amount of time <laughs> go to a referendum then and then have a actual addition put on but yeah did did you have any classes in the portable classrooms were they there when you were oh, there yeah. okay I, maybe a little bit of my freshman year but i don't think i had any I think every single year and semester I had at least one class in the portables. Okay. Like the portables, yeah, the portables are meant to be short term, like, you know, only a few <laughs> years, but they were there by the time I came into school as a freshman and they were there by the time I left. When I visited about a year after I graduated, they were still there and I'm pretty sure they're still there right now. So maybe they've had another one. How about security? How about going into the portables? Was the, the door just open and anyone on campus could get in? Was there a PA system? Was How was it, it different when you did just, the portables? It is just a regular door. <laughs> okay. So like you could, lock, you could lock the door. And to their credit, every single portable had a good PA system. So like if the principal nice. was making an announcement, you could hear it. Um, but yeah, it was just like, it's just a normal door. You could lock it. When all of these changes came into place in your district, um, tell me about how students or if students had any say in anything that was going on. Um, as far as I know, they didn't. Uh, keep in mind, though, I was just kind of a normal high school student. I wasn't in like the student government or the student board or any of that. So they might have, and I just didn't know, but they didn't talk. They never talked about it in the morning announcements. So as far as I know, we didn't have a say. 
Okay. Um, so yeah, we, we, what I notice is that a lot of the people in the student government, they called it ASB there. Like most of them were just figureheads. Cause in my senior year, my friend, his name was Mike. Yeah. Was elected to the president. One of the uh, student, I can't remember. They just called him president. He couldn't really do anything. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he tried, and he, like, he really tried. Like, if you ever were to meet Mike, he has probably the most purest heart of anyone I've ever met. And so he tried to, like, improve this school, but he didn't realize that here the president is just a figurehead. So nowhere, um, you know, was there an assembly or, you know, meeting with the class classrooms individually saying, hey, we're doing some changes and here's why we're doing them, or, you know. None of that. Okay, yeah. So, so this brings me to my next question. Um, how did these new safety measures impact you? And specifically, you know, did you have all of a sudden new drills that you were participating in? Um, did you have to go through like a metal detector? Did you have an app that the staff said, here, download this safety app to your phone. And then in case something bad happens, find the app and we'll give directions on what to do. Anything like that? Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. more like lockdown drills, which is like the someone would come on the announcements, the school is in lockdown, they'd lock all the doors. Um, and I was telling you before we started that we had metal detectors in like two of the ten entrances. Right. For the first I remember for the first few weeks after we installed them, like everybody had to go through like the main entrance where a metal detector was. Right. That lasted for like two weeks. And then everybody just started going to the other ones. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Nick, did it did it stop because it just took too long? Was it like you know it, at two nine o'clock nine thirty and kids are still outside trying to get in, or was it just the you know I guess why did it not sustain? What do you think? That was definitely one of it. And the thing is with metal detectors, that was the one kind of fortification measure that I thought made some sense. Like okay, yeah, just don't let anybody waltz into the school. But then what I didn't realize is, one, all the stuff you mentioned in your book, like they just, the other thing is metal detectors don't detect guns. They just detect metal. Right. So they could right. detect guns, but it could also detect anything that has metal in it. Like uh, maybe it's hard to see, but I have a guitar. Yeah. Um, what about the kids that like to bring their guitars to school? What are most of the strings on most guitars made right. out? And if it's an electric guitar, it has metal in there as well. So I know there were some like, false positives, but, you know, because it's protocol, they had to do to check the backpacks. And um, 
Like obviously, if you have a metal detector, you'd want to staff it. So we'd have every morning we'd have the school security guard. Um, he would be there. But the thing is, like normally he would patrol. So you have like this 30 or 40 minute block of time where you know he's right there, which means he's not doing anything else. Right. Right. And even before that, like students would try to go into the other um, entrances anyway. Every now and again, they would have they would station teachers there to stop people from doing that. But slowly, they just didn't do that, and eventually, like, eh, okay. Like technically, technically, up until I graduated, we still had to go through the metal detectors, but I only did that a handful of times. Like in the first few weeks, it was strictly enforced. Um, another thing they did, I don't know if this was the direct result of the fortifications or something else that happened in my freshman year, but there's a map of the school, and it has, it has this little cafeteria area, and, you know, it is not big enough for everybody to eat lunch in there, even though they gave us three lunch periods. Like, they split the school up into three sections. They called sure. them hallways, and they were like, okay, first lunch, everybody in section A gets to eat lunch. Uh, uh, second lunch, section B, third lunch, section C. Even when they did that, the cafeteria was not big enough to hold everybody in one lunch. So what a lot of kids would do is they would just go to other areas of the school. They would go near the locker rooms, uh, in the hallways, which is where I like to eat lunch. But at some point, they were just like, nope, everybody goes into the, cafe the, the cafeteria area and stay there. I'm just like, really? Do you see any space for us to sit down here? Right. But that, right. So that, that was, that's all that I remember. Um, and we had to do bus evac evacuation drills, too. But I think we've always kind of had to do that. But. Okay. So coming back to the to the metal detector. So you, was it one SRO um, school resource officer trying to check in 2,000 students? Am I correct in, in that interpretation of basically, something? Okay. Basically, like they had the obviously the school security guard there. They also had like one or two teachers as well, I guess, to help with checking the backpacks, but yeah, pretty much. And the thing is, I'm sure they would have allowed a lot of more people to the metal detectors if they could, but at the time, that school, or uh, that security guard, he was the only one. During my senior year, there were two, but that was just because the current one was about to retire, so the new guy, he was just training the right. replacement. So probably after I graduated, it went back to one because the old guy retired. So... And how about how about after school, Nick? So, you know, anything, any clubs after school, any other events um, that people go through a metal detector? I mean, kids participating in clubs, sports, um, you know, once the school day is done. I mean, the, so the thing with metal detectors, too, is they're usually staffed, operational from the time school opens in the morning till the last bell of the day, and then all the other school activities just kind of happen. The doors get propped open and things like that. Basketball practice, seven at night, there's not somebody there with a wand or, or checking somebody. Is that Was your observation like that, too, that, you know, the metal detector was only operational from this time and then not any other time? Pretty much. Melt detector might have been operational, but the thing is, when it came to the after-school clubs, a lot of kids didn't use the main entrance to leave. They just used, like, the closest convenient exit. Right. So, so even if it was operational and staffed, you could just not leave the school through the main entrance. And there you go. You don't have to deal with the metal detector. 
So in, in kind of closing out on the metal detector, did you just, did you consider it an inconvenience? Was it more, I believe this is making me safer or was it just, this is something that's virtue signaling by administration to feel like it's safer, but Hey, we have all these doors. We have just two metal detectors. Come on. Um, well, initially, remember, they had, like, the first few weeks where they tried to make everybody go into the two entrances that had metal detectors. Then I'm like, okay, it's a little bit annoying, takes a little longer to get in, but I feel a little bit safer because, you know, guns, it would a metal detector would catch that. But after they just got looser and looser and enforcing, like, enforcing students to come into the metal detectors, after that, I'm just like, this doesn't really do anything, so I don't feel any more safe. Yeah. So, um, and mostly... Like I wrote here, like I didn't really feel any safer after I went after the school went all in, or at least tried to. Mostly because of one, you could just go where the metal detectors weren't, and also it didn't do anything to stop. Like most of these fortifications, the first thing people think of is school shootings, and I'm sure that's what they were trying to prevent. But here's the thing: my high school never had a school shooting. Like at least not when I was there. The right. things that happened a lot, they were like you know, fights, and this is not, like, not with, like, knives or weapons, like, just fist fights. Sure. All this was geared towards shootings, but our real problems had to do with, like, fights, drugs and sex in the bathrooms, um, and hallways, and stuff like that. Those fortifications, like, they pretty much didn't do anything to stop those. Yeah, that that's a terrific point, because, uh, you know, people get very narrow in focus, and and whether, as you indicated, there's other areas of need, and that's where when you talk to the students, not just serving. I'm not a big fan of serving, but I guess at least serving would have been something. But you know, what are the things in our school that we need to address that don't make you feel safe? And it's like going down that hallway, like that's, you know, there's a lot of bullying, a lot of harassment, or, you know, the upperclassmen throw the younger classmen up against the lockers. I mean, we hear all of it, and it's like, yeah. okay, but, you know, yeah, let's I, go back to to bollards and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's funny, though. It's like I, like, I have these two things that I remember that, like, they did make people feel less safe, but all the fortifications and stuff didn't really do anything to change it. So there was one, like, you know how we're always taught, oh, see something, say something, and yeah. situational awareness, which you mentioned in your book. There was this one time, it was like, I'm pretty sure it was my sophomore year. Like, you know how you wait at the bus stop, the bus picks you up? There right. was this one guy, apparently he was, like, mentally ill, and he was, like, 25 at the time. He just got on our bus and came to school with us, and nobody, like, I'm sure people noticed, but nobody said anything. Right. And that was my bus route. So that guy was probably sitting like a few seats away from me. But like, as far as I remember, there wasn't any announcements of that. Like there was the only reason I knew it happens, like people were mentioning it like that day. In yeah. school. So I'm just like, there's a blind spot right there. What if he had a gun or some sort of knife? And, and that that's a terrific point because um, this happens like where where I live in near Madison, Wisconsin. I knew probably three, four, five times a year somebody gets on a school bus at a route um, or at a drop-off, and then either it's not identified or they have to get a hold of the police. But that's crazy. Yeah, you're looking back and... and, uh, um, and this, then this here's, yeah. here's another one. Um, now, this I'm pretty sure this is like my junior or senior year. And apparently, 
like I have one school, there was another school in the district. Apparently, like we just like beat their ass in a football game or something. Beat them. Didn't yes. like that. <laughs> some, you know, it's some something like that. So kids from that other school got in the car, drove over to their school, like found members of the football team they didn't like and just beat them up. Like they just walked in the school and was like, oh, what? And again, like the ballards wouldn't have stopped that unless they were trying to like crash their cars into the school. Right. But the officer didn't stop them because he can obviously he's only one person. He can only be so many places at once. Yeah. But the metal detectors didn't do any didn't do crap to stop that. Wow. And those, but unlike school shootings, these are things that actually happened. Like they might not be very likely to happen again, but they actually happened. And this is stuff like if they tried doing things that were meant to counter that, like control access to school, that might have made me feel a little bit safer. But it's like all this stuff that's geared towards school shootings, like our school never had a school shooting. And as far as I know, it never has. And and so, Nick, this is a point that I want to, to resonate for for people listening is things that actually happen or probability. So what is more probable? Is it probable for um, people to try to get into the school, you know, other students? And again, I've seen that in districts where kids or, or you know, 20 year olds will pose as students to go in and sell drugs. Like they'll buy an ID from a student and then they'll just walk in the door. Um, and you know, these types of things that actually happen, um, School shootings are still very rare. I mean, you know, one, I've seen one statistic, one out of 614 million. And we just know, for example, like being struck by lightning while you attend school for 12 years or 13, you know, including kindergarten, is much more probable than being involved in a school shooting. But, you know, these things that actually happen, people coming in, another thing that I observe is parents who get angry because of some social media post or, or something going on. My child's being bullied or there's this group and 10, 15 parents will storm the school. You know, I'm going to come in and, and they'll try to find a student or students and there's fights again around here. It makes the news. Um, and like fights, like not like nothing to do with weapons, but just like fights right. or altercations. That is way much more of a problem that happens in like every school. Like, I guarantee you there is no, like, public high school in the world that has never had a fight or doesn't have to deal with fights. That is just way more common than a school shooting. Obviously, it's not as lethal, but it happens a lot more often. So it makes more sense to try and stop those than it does to start the school shootings. And going back to what you said earlier about, like, how people that are older pretend to be students and come in to sell drugs, they don't even need to get IDs. Like, as long as you look like a student, right. time, students will let you right. in. Obviously, I'm 21, but if you just saw me on the street, I could pass as a high school student, couldn't I? Sure. sure. Um, yeah. So, Nick, there's there's a video um, on YouTube, and it's uh, like some. If you just type in, it's a man carrying a ladder, and um, he he did an experiment to, to try to see if he could basically get in anywhere just by carrying a ladder and seeming a, you know having appearance that he he should be there. Didn't have any special uniform on anything like that. And it's amazing. I show this when I teach uh, school administrators. It's a short video, maybe three, five minutes. It's pretty, it's funny, except when you realize how easy it is to be convincing. You know, he'll he'll show up at a movie theater and he'll have his ladder and then people just start assuming, you know, workers, he should be here. So let's try to help him out and 
you know, what are you, what are you supposed to do? I'm supposed to check whatever. And then he would, well, which theater? I don't know. And what's the names? And then he would say that one. And then they'd say, okay, it's right down here. Um, so it is one of these things. So it's so easy to be convincing. And I, I talked with a private detective um, who said, you know, if I ever want information like from a school about a student or anything, and I feel I'm going to have trouble getting that, I'll just use the TTY line, which is if you're deaf, you can use that line. Oh, and, the the, <laughs> and he said it always works. Well, so I know Nobody that. will question the TTY line on the, you know, they'll, they'll completely give you anything. He said, there's just no, no checks and balance. So one of the, the points right now, and what you've talked about is the systems that we put in place, we easily fatigue them just by not having fidelity. Like, you know, the metal detectors after a few weeks, it's like, yeah, we're, we're going to ease back on that and some of these other things. Um, and they weren't so, that strong in the first place. Like, if you allow me, I actually have a screenshot of my old school that yeah, I can please. see the point. Okay, let me just uh, share my screen here. All right, so this is like the main building of my school. The portables would have been over here and like the track and the football fields would have been over here somewhere. So the red circles, this is every possible entrance or exit to the school. Like we're talking doors or um, like, oh, right around here would be the loading bay. And the blue X's is where I remember we had metal detectors. So that's, you notice that's two of them. Can you see a problem here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's like, oh, you just lock all the doors. The students will open the doors. Like I remember, like here's the main entrance. I would, I would come in through the main entrance, and I would hang out here. There would be a few people, like their parents would drop them off here because right around here was really crowded, and they would just walk up the stairs here. They'd just knock on the door, and if they look, you look like you're supposed to be here, I would have, look like all you're... my friends would have opened the door. Same deal for here, here, um, and all of this is like, obviously there are doors, but they had, there's glass here too, so... Even, and even with bulletproof glass, like I didn't realize this until I got older. The degree to which anything is bulletproof really depends on your choice of firearm and ammunition. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But you can already see the problem. Like you talk about like drill fidelity, system fidelity. Like even if they strictly enforced it, like it wasn't that strong to begin with. Because look at all these possible entrances or easily made entrances where the metal detectors weren't. Like, right around here is where those guys from the other school came and started beating up the football team, I guess. They came <laughs> through right here. Even if we had bullets right here, it wouldn't have stopped them because they got out of the cars and just went through them. But, and in the morning, you know, for the Exxon on the right, the main entrance, I'm, you know, you said it was congested. So, you know, out there on that, that I guess, concrete slab, um, you know, there could be, and there probably were hundreds of students for at least a period of time, you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes. So somebody shows up there. It depends, um, it depends on when you get to the school because the buses don't always arrive at the exact same time. Some buses take a little longer. But yeah, if you came in like one of the last few buses to arrive, the line could be like, here's the door. The line would be like out, out to here sometimes. Wow. So. Yeah, this is... Um, this is a, a very critical, you know, diagram to point out again, the number of entrances. Um, if you're on one side of the building and something is happening, um, 
it would be very hard to understand on the other side what's really transpiring. What if there were a, a few students who were involved in something? But then, you know, we take away the the whole shooter concept. This is just a lot of area, um, you know, for the potential of, of, you know, whether it be fights, whether it be you know, bullying, harassment, just, I mean, it's a lot of, I, it, this could be a million square foot campus. I mean, um, yeah. And the other thing, like even if the building itself was secure, there are like a ton of places you could come in from the quote-unquote outside world. Like you see a freeway there. It's a little hard to see, but this little road here, I guess it's right. about 346, eventually leads there. And there's like a crap ton of woods right here. So someone could just like start from like a house, like there's a neighborhood right around here, just go through the woods. And even if there is a fence, maybe they installed one, jump over it. Right. Or Nick, you know, pull somebody pulls a fire alarm, right? And then the students leave and then some, you know, students are out in the wooded area. And there have been school shootings, for example, that way that have been planned out, knowing that students would come out and you'd have some cover. Um, yeah, so Nobody looking at the... Yeah. Like, this is, but there was this one couple, like we would call them, like they're basically, they're basically that couple, like PDAs. It's like kissing in public, eh. But it just got to the point where even to the students who were just as horny as they are, it was annoying. Okay. I remember, like, this was right around here, somewhere in these woods, was a pretty well-known, like, it was a spot where these guys would go to have sex. And yeah. nobody would actually staff it unless there was, like, P.E. there. And even then, it's like most of the time when you're having P.E., you're either, and it's outside, you're either over here, like if you're running laps, over here, I guess this is like a softball field. Or you're over here, and I'm pretty sure that's a shed right there. You just go behind the shed, go into the woods. We would not notice. No. But. It's like people were aware of this. Like this, everybody really knew about it, just no one was doing anything about it, right? Because Pretty know. much. Okay. And, if, they, and if, if the staff really didn't know about it, like it never crossed their mind, then we have a bigger problem. Right. I mean, then, yeah, because student focus groups, somebody would come forward and say, yeah, you know what? It's out there. That's where this is happening or that's where, you know, drugs staff, or this is where kids are skipping out. At least they'd make people aware of it. Yeah. And I think the staff did know. Like, I emailed you a little while ago that, um, oops, let me, a little while ago, and I had this one teacher after all this stuff was implemented, We were he was an English literature teacher so you're reading some sort of book about like it had something to do with like an attack on a school and someone brought up school shootings and the teacher just said like dead honest he didn't sugarcoat anything it's like guys i really hope we don't have a school shooting here because i'll be honest even with all this we pretty much have no way to protect you if there is one so i'm just like really we just spent however many millions of dollars with the ballards and all that and even the teachers know it's like, yeah, we pretty like if a school shooting happens, we're pretty much fucked. Tell me more about I mean how you reacted to that and then maybe your friends or everybody else are like, what? Or was it I I mean, yeah, that that is truth, right? A lot a lot of people aren't gonna come forward and say that, but that's a truthful statement. I mean, this is how this person felt. This they're probably minimized by administration of saying Oh yeah. yeah. Just go along with it. Um, and again, the odds are it won't happen. Um, and you're talking about all these things that went in and bollards and things like that. You know, it's customer perceived value. People want to see these things. Parents want to see these things. School boards um, are convinced these things work because vendors tell them so. 
Um, but that's that's horrifying. Did you come home and like share that information with anyone else or sit down and yeah, today they I mean it had to be like you gotta be kidding, right? You gotta be kidding. This is what Well like our reaction like in the class when he told us that, we didn't have much of a reaction, like we didn't start freaking out. Because I think everybody else kind of knew that. Especially when right that was right around the time we just like stopped using the metal detectors and stopped requiring students to enter through right. those places. So they'd probably say, yeah, like, I think everybody in my class subconsciously knew. It's like, yeah, we don't have much in ways in the way of actually stopping an attack once it starts, which these fortification measures, they're made to do. They're not meant to stop an attack before it happens. They're meant to minimize the impact of an attack after it starts happening, if I'm not mistaken. And, like, yeah. the people who do eat all of that, like, obviously, you're the safety expert here, but I'm sure you'd agree that the one thing worse than just not being safe is not being safe, but thinking that you are, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, so there's some there's some realism with that faculty member telling you that that they're being honest with you, right? They're, they're, they're leveling up. They're telling you versus a faculty member who knows this isn't safe you know that there isn't anything that can be done and then just not saying anything about it so at least there's they're bringing it up um as students was there any response like i mean as you said it's kind of implicit you already realize this but any movement then to at least try to get administration try to get somebody to uh, bring some fidelity back to the system or try to listen or is it just kind of like yeah this is it's just the school this is how things work and we get it pretty much that it's like Again, I wasn't on the student government, so maybe, like, those guys did try to get something done, but nothing was done that actually made any impact. Like, we didn't have any assemblies. It's like, what would make, what would make you kids feel safer? Okay. Um, but, yeah, there was none of that. And so, I think we already knew this, but we, didn't fe- we definitely didn't feel any safer after that teacher told right. us that. <laughs> right. I mean, that it's... Uh, so when you brought up those diagrams, those came from Google Earth or were those Google shared? Maps. Oh, Google Maps. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's that's something else to bring up to people. Um, you know, some districts will say, well, we don't share our school maps with the public, although actually a lot of them do and they shouldn't. But um, I Google, like what I did, I just Googled the name of the high school, <laughs> right. Beamer High School map. Right. Like, the maps, I found maps, they just weren't very good. I'm like, okay, even if they don't, go to Google Google Maps, type it in, hit the button to switch it to a satellite view, boom, you have a map of the school. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a high-resolution map of the school. Or if anybody has a drone, all you got to do is just zip yeah. your drone up and do one pass, and you've got it. So um, I, I listen to people who feel so protective, like they, they don't give this information out, and they just don't realize it's it's – ubiquitous like it's i can do a search and find this in a minute and get what i need a must read for parents teachers and taxpayers dr david perodin has written the most honest book about the three billion dollar school safety industrial complex attorney james sibley proclaims a brave demonstration of speaking truth to power 
School of Errors rips the lid off the billion-dollar school safety industry. Using real-world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Did you have any type of um, hyper-realistic drills when you're in school? You know, like people are coming in and, and firing off rounds and pounding on doors and you're having to throw furniture up and barricade the doors and all of that type of stuff? Um, not quite to that degree. It's not like we like simulated gunshots for a lockdown drill. But what okay. someone did do, like we had a lockdown drill, the principal announced, okay, the school's in lockdown, you know, lock the doors. I guess we had some, the administrators, they came, they pounded on doors, like, hey, let me in. But they didn't, that was the extent of the hyper-realism. They didn't, like, like have toy guns or anything like that. But they did have people pounding on doors. And I think they tried to open the door, too, but, you know. All right. So this is happening. Um, the the hyper-realistic drills are happening more and more of people coming in, um, you know, firing off rounds, telling people stack things against doors. They're like, grab grab the guitar. It's like Nick's guitar. I don't care. Against the door. What, the guitar? I am not putting that up against the door. <laughs> no. Those are my babies right there. Um, it's crazy. So, so Nick, um, in your high school, did, was there any type of program, positive behavioral interventions and supports? Um, so it's called PBIS. It's very common in elementary schools, middle schools across the country. Districts will say they do it at a high school level, although I really haven't found a high school where this works. But any, do you remember a program at your school of, hey, you can get so many tokens for attendance or for, quote, unquote, good behavior? And I know how corny and crazy this sounds. You're a, you're a high schooler back then. You know, it's, but this, this was an approach to um, try to change student behavior and make schools safer, this whole um, PBIS concept and, and putting it in. Did, did that happen at your school? Did they try to roll that out at all? I remember they had something like that. I remember it was Todd Beamer High School. So we had these things called Beamer Bucks. Yes, that's redeem, what it is. You could redeem them for something. I just remember they were there. I can't even remember what specifically they gave them out for. It was attendance. I was pretty much never late, and I never got one for attendance. Oh, but, even if, but even if I did, it's like it would it would have only been for, like, a school T-shirt Nothing something students actually would have wanted to buy. Like, what I would yeah. have done is, like, we had this student store, and it wasn't for, like, school memorabilia. It was where you could buy, like, chips and pizza. They had pizza in the regular cafeteria, but it, it sucked. Right. Like, they had, like, Papa Johnson, so that was good. But you, couldn't, <laughs> but you couldn't redeem your Beamer Bucks to get, like, pizza or, like, Gatorade, which is what I, I would have done, and that would have incentivized me to get it, but... I remember that they had it, but I don't remember actually doing anything. Okay. And that's that's usually the problem is these programs come into play and 
students don't know exactly why or how to earn these things. And then if you do redeem them, especially at a high school level, it's for something that you really don't want. You know, like, I don't need, yeah, uh, a T-shirt. Um, I don't need, um, yeah, a pair of sunglasses with my, my school logo on the side. It's like, yeah, give me Gatorade. Give me pizza. I'm good with that. Um, but this this gets to this whole issue of students not informing the process. No one asking students, hey, if we do this, realistically, like, what would you what would you want? And no one is going to say, I want a T-shirt. They're going to say, yeah, um, school I store, pizza, you know, Gatorade or this, like these types of things, if you're going to do this. Um, so, wow. Beamer bucks. Yeah. But yeah, no one, no one going through of like how, what this no whole program is about. Yeah. Any assembly, any, any Beamer Bucks assembly, like celebrating the Beamer Bucks? I think they, I don't know if it was specifically for Beamer Bucks, but they had these, like these little assemblies in like this small room of people who had like, I don't think it was even for Beamer Bucks. It was like for people who had a 3.5 GPA and like, what'd you get? Ice cream. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, I'm not much of an ice cream eater, but I almost yeah. went once just to get out of class for that period. Right. Uh, even then, I'm just like, eh. right. the one thing that I'm sucks just... is like, and another thing, this isn't exactly a fortification measure, but it's something that happened as a result of violence. So like, you know how we have assemblies? Not everybody wants to go to the assemblies. The assemblies would be obviously in the gym. So... I'd say, okay, you just sign this opt-out form and you go into the cafeteria and you just spend the assembly there. And I remember, I'm pretty sure this is my freshman year, these two guys got into a fight over a chair. Like a chair, like a seat in the cafeteria. Like, and, and you know, like if someone is fighting with your friend, you'd probably want to jump in. That cascaded right. to like five people. Like, I don't know if they got arrested, but like had some sort of disciplinary action. And so as a result of that, we weren't allowed to opt out of assemblies anymore. And if we wow. did, we had to stay in one room. Like, we couldn't leave for bathroom breaks or anything like that. We just had to stay there. And, yeah. So not exactly a fortification measure, but it didn't really fix the thing that caused the fight. There's two. Uh, I remember these two girls in sophomore year got in a fight over a cupcake, but the school didn't <laughs> ban cupcakes. What? Yes, a, a cupcake. Like, okay. I remember, because I was walking to my biology class, there were these two girls fighting. The uh, the school security guard, he broke it up. One of the girls, this must have been a damn good cupcake, because I remember one of the girls, it's like, she must have gotten punched or scratched here. Because there was, like, blood on her face coming down like this, and I saw some on the floor, too. I'm just like, my God, how good is this cupcake? But oh I didn't have much time to think about it, so I just had to go to biology. Yeah. Again, and this is what is happening. I mean, pure conflicts and, and yet, you know, you're not having discussions, sit downs of saying, hey, how can we try to, to make this better? So it's not happening. <sighs> Cupcakes. Yeah. Wow. So, Nick, statistic, 75% uh, of the time when there's a school shooting, okay? 75% of the time, at least one other student knew. And often most um most cases, multiple students knew, families knew, didn't come forward with the information. 
So I want to learn from you. When you were in high school, how were you instructed to identify threats? I mean, the counselors, the principals ever say, hey, like social media, if somebody's posting this, or if you see somebody, you know, like doing whatever, if, if someone is, is saying these things, you're getting some messages. Um, first of all, how, how were you ever instructed saying, here's what to look for? And then the second part was instructed on, here's how to report this. Not really. I remember we had some sort of assembly, because you know a lot of schools had student handbooks, and they, talk, they talked a little bit about that in the assembly where we got, where we got handed the handbooks. But keep in mind, this is like four years ago, so I don't remember everything. But I remember that they didn't give us a lot of specific guidance beyond just saying, see something, say something, or don't be afraid to come to a teacher or a, a staff member. But even the thing is... Well, I guess that leads into your next question, but we'll get to that later. But basically, like, they didn't really say to do anything specific other than see something, say something. Like, they just assumed that you would know to go to the nearest teacher or something like that. Like, I don't know this for sure, but I would be willing to bet the only reason the teachers saw the fights is because it's like, just a lot of teachers or staff members happen to be roaming around. So usually one of them will see it and just tell, like, right. I'll spray, and he'll come and do it. But I don't know. Like, they didn't really give us any specific guidance on what to do. Just see something, say something. Be like, uh, okay. So nothing, you know, like, here's a social media post. You know, let's say a student made, um, if you saw something like this where they're threatening I hate the school on this day or whatever. I mean, None nothing explicit. No samples. Okay. But, and even realistically, is anybody really going to, like, announce it on social media? It's like, at this day and this time, I'm going to attack this school. I'm like, really? Like, the yeah. the guy who said, the guy in your book who said, oh, yeah, if there was a metal detector, I'd walk right through it. He didn't put any, well, there wasn't any social media back then, but he didn't, like, call everybody on his contact list and be like, yeah, I'm going to shoot the, shoot up the school. They would not do that. So nothing explicit about what to look for. And then the see something, so say something, basically tell an adult was just, Pretty was, there any, was there any app, was there any anonymous line, anything like that, or it was just tell an adult? Nope, pretty much okay. just tell an adult. Okay. So, Nick, this happened at, like, a start of school assembly, start of school year. Did it ever happen again, like, mid-year, another assembly, same thing was talked about? Or was it kind of like the one time at the start of the year, here's what we tell yeah. you, we're good? The beginning of the year. Okay. I mean, so. it's not like, I honestly don't think it would have made any difference if they did it, like, once a semester anyway. Because yeah. we all know it's like, okay, this is bullshit, and I already know I should say something. But you're not telling me what specifically I should do. Yeah. Was there any sense, did you pick up any sense where people, you know, your classmates are like, yeah, but I'm not going to, also this thing where I'm not going to snitch, like I'm not going to say anything. Because really, if I say anything, let's say it's a, you know, students involved in fights, drugs, skipping campus, whatever, they're not going to do anything anyway. You know, any of any of that um, thought, like, hey, if the administration, yeah, this they don't do anything, so I'll, I'm not going to report it. Pretty much. Like, I don't know about, like, not ratting on your friends. I'm sure it was, it was part of it. But I think mostly, because you your next question is probably, like, why don't students report threats? 
there might be a little bit of that loyalty you don't rat on your friends. But I think the much bigger problem is the belief, which keeps getting confirmed, that if we do tell an adult, they are usually not going to do anything about it. Yeah. It's like, um, like if you say, oh, they're fighting, they might because, like, if you can actually show them fighting, or it's like, check the security cameras here, you'll see them fighting. Like, unless you can basically catch someone in the act, they probably aren't going to do anything. And that's a big part of what's, you know, the youth code of silence. Um, you know, once kids and even adults, right, um, feel that nothing's going to happen, they they just check out of the system. So it was, gosh, it was uh, Detroit, Michigan, right? Detroit put in these, they're called um, shot spotters or whatever the hell. So they would be up on telephone poles. And if someone would fire a gunshot, it would alert the police that there was a gunshot on this block. And what they found was these things would notify police, but then no one was calling 911 saying, hey, there was a gunshot like outside of my house because after a, a, they just learned, you know, it was 20, 30 minutes before police will show up. And then they might ask, did you hear anything, see anything? And people be like, and, and nothing changed. Like the police presence left. And then half hour <laughs> later, someone fired a shot again. So they were just like, forget it. You know, they sit the system, you know, again, they, they, thought this would be this big deterrent and and is it no 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 completely not right so it just people just ignored it so the police were responding then are asking people didn't didn't you hear the gunshot and then they'd be like yeah but you know what are we going to do call the police and then a half hour later you show up and everything is done and gone and we go back to normal i mean normal here of being another shot next hour so or even that it's like it's meant if I'm not mistaken, it's meant to detect gunshots. What about things that sound a lot like gunshots? Like what of like I remember in chemistry they had this experiment. They were teaching us about gases and like they were using balloons. And you know how like they torch the balloon and then it pops? That might sound like a gunshot, depending on where the uh device right. is stationed. What about that? Yeah. And you know, yeah, so many things. I, I wrote about um in my book, uh, Kevin Sullivan, the Iraq of uh, war veteran, but he was on the tarmac when it was being bombed, and he thought, you know, it sounded like a dumpster, um, you know, someone banging a dumpster around gunshots, you know, where that's what he first thought. And so, yeah, all of these things where these these complicated systems come into place to try to try to detect all of this. And so before we before we move on, so the student fatigue, did you feel after the fortifications went into place, uh, the bollards, the single entry, things like that. Um, I guess, was there any, any pushback from the, the student? Was it, more, it seems like it was just kind of more indifferent. Like, okay, this is happening. We know nationally there's a lot of stuff going on. People just kind of accepted it, but it, it didn't change culture or did it make students, did any students say like, come on, this is ridiculous or did they just go with it? Any, I mean, I'm trying to, to get that take because it seems like a lot of money was put into this and nothing really changed. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. 
when we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Like maybe in like the single entry thing, it made us feel a little bit safe. Like okay, they're enforcing it; it's a little bit more annoying. Like oh, they're not even loosely enforcing it now; it's just annoying. And I, as far as I remember, there wasn't any like serious backlash against it. And I would bet anything that I was because we, like we don't feel that it would have actually done anything. Like if we signed, if we had this petition that literally every student in the school signed, and we. Uh, we gave it to the next like parent teacher meeting or whatever it was, they would be like, Oh yeah, that's nice. Trash, trash, trash it. So especially like even if the student government tried to do it, they might have. But let's just say they tried and they didn't. If they can't, what makes you think the rest of the students could? But right. like they aren't as close with the administration. So Yeah, and and let's be honest. I mean you pointed it out. Um the student government has very little input into anything, <laughs> um, even though it might look like they, you know, administration will make it look like student it's government a has a lot of authority. You know, it's going to be some minor things like, you know, if we're, um, you know, changing some things on a, on a menu, if we're changing some school colors, if we're doing whatever, or, you know, here's some ideas for graduation. It's not going to be these types of things. So in wrapping this section up, and this has been incredible, um, Basically, all of these fortifications and not this pushback, it's not because people were feeling more safe, like they felt that this had brought a resolution to this issue of school safety. It's more or less they just kind of looked at this and said, yeah, this isn't this isn't making me safer. It's not effective. So I'll deal with it and we'll move on. Like this is what they had to do. And again, I'm, I'm just, it's so difficult. Uh, Disheartening, but also realistic to hear you say they're not involving students. They're not having students at least sit down and, and give their thoughts or try to give some input, um, even yeah. if it doesn't work, but they're just completely dismissing. Like, why the would students. they? They're just kids. Like, they don't have the power here. Like, I, like, I don't know if this is modern or this has always kind of been a thing, but especially the younger kids, they just kind of wall them off so they don't have to deal with them. Like, going back to my map of the school real quick. Um, second here. All right. So here's the map of the school again. Um, all, you see all these things that stick out here. We called them clusters. So this was cluster A. This was cluster B. Cluster C. Now, I had a friend who was a year younger than me, so he stayed at this school a year longer than I did. What they basically did is, like, the freshmen were just so misbehaved and the teachers didn't want to really do anything about it. They pretty much kind of, like, walled off this section here and just, like, tried to stuff pretty much all the freshmen in there. And okay. my friend was a senior at the time this happened, so when he went in there to do something, because he was part of yearbook, like, he went in there to, I guess, interview a teacher. There were, like, these kids running around, and then there were the there were faculty around, but they weren't really, like trying to stop the kids they were just like that's a bad move bad move and you know it's like a what was i think they call it a demilitarized zone 
Right. It's like, to me, that's just the ultimate stage of just giving up. It's like, here, it's like, there, there's your space. We don't want to deal with you anymore. Like, I don't know if maybe they did it to the other two clusters because it's yeah. spread, but that was the kind of like attitude that this, the faculty apparently had. The I school's think, DMC. Wow. I, I feel really bad for the teachers who were in this cluster because right around here was the, this is where the teacher's classroom where he told us, yeah, I hope we don't have a shooting because we're pretty much fucked if we do. Like right. he, his classroom would have been like right here. And then I think I had a few more classes back here. Most of my classes were over here, but I feel bad for all those teachers who had to deal with that and the admins because they had like a, a little mini office right here. So Nick, I'm going to move us into the the second part, and this will this will be a, a shorter segment of the interview. So, um, school safety is a three billion dollar industry. Now it could be five billion. I kind of argue it's closer to five. People use three because I roll in. Schools will go to referendum and they'll say we need new windows and doors and all of these types of things, camera systems, um, which maybe they need it anyway. Like these things hadn't been maintained, and then they'll badge it under school safety, but so from a marketing perspective, okay, let's say somebody comes to you and they say, Nick, um, I have a school safety app. I want to have you put together a campaign proposal. I'm thinking of hiring you. Um, let's do a digital campaign. Um, and what strategies would sell my phone app to, you know, this high school or whatever high school, school districts I'm trying to, you know, pitch this to, um, what strategies would you recommend to sell safety to panic parents and nervous school boards? And again, you, this is what you do. This is your expertise. So, um, yeah, be, be blunt, be blunt with saying, this is what, this is what I would do to help you get sales. Now, I know there's an ethics side of this yeah, and everything, but yeah, just take yeah, it. First of all, I wouldn't get that because one, I don't, like, I don't touch industries that I don't think I can actually provide value. Like, maybe I could provide value to the business, but not the customers. But, okay, let's just say I, you know, caution to the wind, throw my ethics out the door. What I would not do is I'd probably go on Facebook ads. I would, whatever I use, I would not target the students themselves. They don't have any decision power. I would target the parents or, because on Facebook, you can target people based on their job title. I would target parents or like school administrators and principals and be like, hey, did you know that blank, blank percent of school shootings, which is an unverified statistic, happen because like the gun wasn't detected? Don't, well, don't you think that having a way to detect those things would help stop them? Well, here's my gunshot uh, analyzer stuff like that um for the social proof which you know about consumer perceived value but social proof is a marketing term it's like when other people have done it so this would be like an interview with a victim of someone who lost their child at a school shooting or a victim right. of a school shooting um the other thing i would do is basically i'd um like basically i'd emphasize like look uh, you see all these school shootings happen. Maybe this school shooting, maybe this school hasn't had a shooting, but what if it does? Do you, like, do you want to protect yourself from it? And how much is that worth to you? Which is, again, consumer perceived value. But, yeah, I just say go hard on the parents, tug at their heartstrings. 
throw out maybe throw out a little bit of statistics so it makes so it sounds like you're not pulling it out of your ass even though you are. Right. Um, but yeah, and then the other thing you do is don't just show them the ad once. You can do a thing remarketing, which is where you show people ads who have already seen your ads before. It's why how you see some YouTube ads where they're like where they stop like, hey, stop ignoring my ads. Yes. So I would do that too. It's like so I do remarketing. So I target people who have already seen the ads and it would be like a YouTube ad. It's like, so you've seen you've seen these testimonials, you know the stories of the school shootings, but you didn't book a time for us to chat. It's like and then just kind of keep hammering away. But that's that is what I would do. If I would, I would not do that in the first place. But. Right. Well let's say um let's put a dollar value to this because I, I want people to have an idea. Um, so this, again, this marketer comes to you, that type of campaign, let's say it's in your state, okay? Because your state now has $200 million in safety grants, hypothetically, okay? Um, what would, how much would a campaign like that cost? Give me a ballpark. I am not exactly sure, but I do know that I would have a ton of money to play around with because I know the Washington State schools have a ton of money to spend, and it's an expensive product. I know that you could throw a ton of money at this. It's like if you're selling, like if you were selling a $100 product and it costs you $200 to make a sale, obviously that's not profitable. But if it's like a $2 million product and you spend 2000 bucks on marketing to make a sale, that's really worth it. But it could easily cascade into the millions of dollars simply because they know it's like, you know, one school saying, yes, let's move forward is worth millions of bucks to them. And even better, once they have one school that's on board, they can use that as further social proof to market to yes. other schools and doing the same things. Like it's a, it, uh, it's, yeah. a bad, it's a it's a bad spiral basically is what it is. So if someone had, let's say, $25,000, you know, they just came up with this app, they have $25,000, there's, there's, you know, millions of dollars available in in state grant funding, Um, would $25,000 probably get them a a pretty solid return on their investment? I mean, if they pitched it the way that that you said. If it, I'm sure it would. If I can't, if I have $25,000 and I can't get them at least like one big contract, I am not doing my job as a marketer. Sure. Especially when like clicks on Facebook and Google, they're pretty cheap. It's like for something like this, it would probably be only like a dollar or two a click, even if it's five dollars. Like if five dollars a click, imagine how many clicks twenty five thousand dollars could buy. Right. So that's a point people don't understand either is um it's very feasible to do marketing when if you have one district buy it and then social proof, because that is, that's key for vendors. They'll use that and they'll say right around you here in this 20, you know, district area, 10 other districts are using our products. So why aren't you? And they, they do what, what I call saturation. You know, they'll, they'll say, here's, here's our set. They don't say it, but it's saturation and saturation is not the same as effectiveness. But if I'm a superintendent and parents are coming to me saying the district next to us just bought all this stuff and we should have this like, right. Why do they have it? And we don't. And the vendor is, is wanting to present to the school board and making contacts and parents are seeing these ads coming up of saying, Hey, you know, 
these districts are using this product and they are choosing to make their students safer. They have made the choice to make their students safer. Yeah. You're almost, I mean, you're completely screwed then as a, as a school board or superintendent in that district that doesn't have it. Because if you say, we're not going to do this, it's just and basically saying. People are going to know why. Like, right. that is when, that's what they're trying to do. Because if you resist, they're going to be like, like, if you have a school shooting, you will go down in history as the principal that led you know, however many students die just because you didn't want to spend a few million bucks on our fancy, like, gunshot detection system or our bulletproof igloos. Yeah. <laughs> well, It's like in uh, Ghostbusters right. 2. We were just talking about the new Ghostbusters trailer. I think in Ghostbusters 2, it's like the mayor didn't want to trust the Ghostbusters, but Dan Aykroyd was like, look, if you don't let us, if you don't do anything, you will personally go down in history as the man right. who lets get stuck down into the 10th level of hell. But it is the same shit when probably when marketers do that. They might not be as overt, but that is what they're doing. Yeah, yeah I, I think it is the point where it crosses from, from you know, selling it as something that will improve your district to a different strategy of saying, if you, why have you chosen not to get this when other people have? Why have you made the choice to not make your school safer? And, and of course, that's a leading question, but if you respond to that saying, you know, we haven't researched or whatever, then it also puts the other districts in a, a weird light of saying, okay, but you're saying this, but are you telling us that these five other districts have no idea what the hell they're doing? Because they're pretty good districts, right? And so I'm guessing they probably know what they're doing. I think it's you that you don't know what you're doing, your school board. And school boards don't want to fight this, Nick. They're like, they yeah, the money's out there. Let's go with it. Like, we're not going to to battle They're, this. The school board They're is a giant student if you think about that. It's like if they feel like nothing they say will like calm the parents down, they'll just go to the path of least resistance. Absolutely. Most of the time Absolutely. the path of the least resistance. And you were saying it's like, you know, marketers kind of put pressure on people like in a negative way, like the consequences of not moving forward. Do you want to know why they do that? Because yeah, I do. Active. Like yeah. Any, like any decent marketer will tell you it's like you have to think about why do people buy something. The reason people buy something or do anything is two reasons. One, to ac acquire pleasure or to escape pain. Now, acquiring pleasure, like buying something, is fine, but escaping pain is a way more powerful motivator. It's like you, even if you're, let's say, let's say you're really hungry, but you're on a diet and you see a Taco Bell. If you go and buy Taco Bell, it's not necessarily because you like Taco Bell. It's just because you want to escape the pain of being hungry. So similar similar to that, it's like maybe a school doesn't really think this security system that's being pitched to them will do anything. But they're just like they know that if they don't, they'll have parents like calling them all the time. They'll have angry right. parents and more marketers just like keep hitting them. So that is like the path of least resistance, and it escapes the pain by getting people to shut up for 10 seconds. And, and I'll give the perspective as a retired school administrator. Um, one, school boards, after parents show up a few times um, asking why these things aren't in the school, and school board members don't want to deal with that anymore, right? It's pain. It's discomfort. That's not what they signed up for. It's an entry-level political position. They don't want people calling them. Um, in saying, hey, you know, we need, yeah, the surveillance system, you need to, to step up and, and do this. Um, they're going to be like, yeah, I'm going to do that. Um, the other part, superintendents. 
So I teach superintendents in my university classes. And what they'll tell me straight up is, yeah, I know this isn't the best thing to go with, right? Like we could spend money in other ways, instructional materials, things that, that we feel we get more value out of. But if we don't put the, the bollards in, Dave, if we don't go with the upgraded camera system, although the camera system we have is three years old, it's, you know, high def, but if we go with the 4K camera system, then apparently, you know, um, the police would be able to log in and, and see an intruder in our situation and all of that, you know, which hypothetically might work, but again, most school shootings happen in a minute. I mean... The cameras don't do anything until something actually happens. Right. Right. And someone, Nick, someone actually made a camera that had a gun attached to it that fit into the corner of a classroom. I'm not making this up. And they oh, contacted me. <laughs> yeah. So it's a little turret that fits in the corner of a classroom and it has a gun in it and a camera. <laughs> um, again, um, and they, they basically said then they could remotely, the police could, if they, if they had a call, they could remotely track the shooter and say, you know, stop or, or we'll fire. And then he, there was also, I think there was a demonstration on YouTube of the product. And then the shooter pulls up and he's starting to fire at this thing. And they're like, and it's Kevlar coated. So it protects the camera and the gun. I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of problems with this. <laughs> like, there's like, just a lot of problems with this. Saying, it's like Kevlar. Oh, people think bullets. Right. Said this before. The degree to which anything is bullet right. depends on the gun and the, uh, the gun and the type of bullet you use. Armor-piercing rounds. If they can get a gun and bullets, why can't they get armor-piercing rounds? Oh, yeah, Mick. I mean, Nick. Imagine being in your classroom. You know in your, your language arts classroom and you're, you're looking up at the clock and then you look a foot over <laughs> and then there's a camera and then there's a gun pointing down from you. I mean, insane. Yet, like, people actually well, put these things together. The that's for sure. Yeah. And that was, that was another problem some of the teachers had. Like, yeah, tell me about that. Oh, man, it's like a lot of the teachers wouldn't pay attention, or not the teachers, the students wouldn't pay attention and because the teachers, their hands are tied, like, they can't really do anything. Like, I had this one math teacher that we would kind of make fun of him. Like, he would get pissed off at the students for not paying attention. He'd say, like, he'd have his man period. I remember there was this one time. It was like, I'm not, I'm not going to stand for this. And someone was like, there's an empty chair right there. <laughs> right. Everybody laughed except him. I got to admit, that was fucking funny. But, and the other thing, in your book, you talk about, like, teacher turnover like i don't know how bad the turnover was pretty bad but the thing is with a lot of these teachers most of them were only a little bit older than i am now i mean my freshman year english teacher mr snowden he was like 27 at the time and he said he'd been teaching for five years that means he basically started teaching right now and you know the principals didn't last that long at all like we had one principal mr kazar i think was he lasted like two years but then we had miss hall who lasted for three years and then she quit and they probably have another principal now so yeah. it's like and even then it's like if you have these young teachers they don't have the confidence yet to stand up it's like hey this is my classroom pay attention or i'm kicking you out yeah i think the whole thing with yeah with culture and climate because of the turnover and and just you know more young teachers, more new administrators, it's hard to have continuity. And then also, you know, these people come in, who's teaching them about safety? Here's why we put in the, um, 
here, you know, here's why we put in the bullet resistive glass. Here's why we were doing the single entry thing with the metal detectors. I mean, that all gets lost. Like when a new administrator comes in, they don't really know why that all came in. And but yeah, this so it's this thing I write about. You know, it's legacy and institutional knowledge of how practices just get looser and looser in schools because of turnover and not passing that information forward. It's really it's a huge huge problem. So why would they? Like you think about it, there's kind of a disincentive for the teachers to share what they know to the new teachers. Because what do they like to do to a lot of like older good teachers who maybe like, you know, maybe demand a higher salary because they've been there for a while. What are they? What are most school districts who are trying to cut costs looking to do to those teachers? Out the door. Yeah. So if you have all this institutional knowledge and you see all these younger teachers, why the hell would you tell the younger teachers? Then you're just giving it's ammunition for your enemies. Yeah, and unless there's a formal, you know, peer mentor program, and you get a three thousand dollar stipend for like being a mentor to a younger student or a younger teacher but yeah those things informally right there's there are disincentive reasons and also administrators coming in many administrators will say yeah i'm going to run the school the way i'm going to run the school i don't need to know what the last person did or the person before i have my own style that's the way that it's going to be and they they just um they, they get very narrow um in, into that um so as, as we, we wrap this up, what um, what frustrates um, customers the most about marketing? And I, I want to know this because I, I also want to know to try to play this off into the school safety marketing aspect of, of to try to understand what, what are barriers or what frustrates people when they try to market things. Oh, like my, like my clients? Sure. Um, well, it doesn't exactly frustrate them but it's something I have to educate them on is like marketing is not magic. Like I, you do not just throw up some ads on Google, Amazon forever to your book and expect it to suddenly make you a million dollars. It's like often you, it involves like improving the product or maybe not the product, but the product description so that people would want to buy it or just all these improvements to the landing page. Like I have this one uh, client who's actually in your neck of the woods. They're in Wisconsin. Their wedding photographers, and I've had to help them update their website. It's like one of the things, because I have this little thing, like after someone fills out a form to get in touch with them, I there's this little survey that asks, what was the one thing that almost stopped you from filling out a form? Right. Um, a big one was not having pricing on the website. I'm like, okay, we have to have pricing on the website. It's a lot of people are just not willing to make those changes, and they think, oh, just because we have a Google ad, suddenly money should start coming in. That's not how it works. You have to work with me and they're not even going to work right away. Like, like nobody, like if anyone comes to you and says, I know how to make you a hundred thousand dollars, like really quickly, I have a proven system. They're lying. Like they have, they might have like a head start on what works, but it's all about like the kind of things that works for you. Like even within the same industry, like I might have this one campaign that did really well for another wedding photographer, but maybe they're in a different area. Maybe they have, maybe they advertise to a specific type of clientele. That does not necessarily mean it's going to work for you. And it even goes the opposite way. Just because someone has never marketed in your specific industry doesn't mean they can't. Like all my clients right now, I have like a music software client, wedding photographer, a high-end barbershop basically. 
I did not have experience marketing in any of those industries before I took them on. And yet I have still done good enough work that they are continuing to work with me because I don't do contracts. I like, like, I will earn your business every month. And if you want to cancel, just like, don't pay the next month and just let me know. Right. So it's like, I do good enough work. And one of the clients I actually stole from like a big marketing agency that specializes in their niche. So I'm like, yeah, I'm already doing better than that. Like I've never had experience in the barbershop niche yet. I'm already doing pretty much doing better than this agency. I stole you guys from good for you, man. Nice. But I, I think people really overestimate the power of like knowing a specific niche. It's like all the industry knowledge in the world. But it doesn't change yeah. the fact that your marketer doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. You know, and so getting into school safety, as we wrap this up, you know, school safety devices um, don't have to be tested. There isn't any type of federal regulation, state, whatever. So someone conceives something and they put it forward. Um, so, I, you know, as far as like somebody knowing their product or a marketer knowing a product in school safety, I think if you have a, a marketer who's very effective at marketing and using kind of the, the strategies which you indicated, getting information forward to people of, Here's what the product is. Why would you not want to select this product? Um, in school safety, you don't have to finite detail down like all the qualities of the product as much as you might if someone is going to buy like um, a new microphone, right? If you're trying to advertise a microphone, you got to get down to the specifics of the microphone, you know, the latency of it. The, I mean, all of the other things, people are going to want to know the details of it. But with the school safety stuff, you can really play off emotions. And that's probably... Um, opens the door, I think, for more people to get in and market. Yep. You don't have to, te no one, no, you don't have to technically outline, for example, when people buy bollers or window films, they don't have to know a whole data set. Like that'll just tune people off. If they just know this will make my school safer, if they're told that, that's it. That's it. And they don't have to go any do, further. Like even if they do have some sort of like pamphlet that outlines how the bollards are built or like the, technical uh, you know the nitty-gritty technical stuff people aren't going to read that right they like people don't care about what it is people care about what it can do for them uh, like think about yeah. it like you had something that needed a drill would you buy do people buy drills or do they buy the hole that the drill creates like did i buy like do i buy this chair or do i buy the stuff i can do with it right like you sell like all marketing is you're supposed to sell the solution to a problem like at the end of the day people want their school to be safe and for the most part they don't care how they get there it's like if you can make them feel like this device whatever it is will make your school safe they have a pretty pretty solid chance of taking the bait that's excellent that's an excellent point and school of air so you bought my book thank you um and what what were some of the reactions you had when reading the book? Like, a lot of it, like, I understand there's a big market for school sport education, but I didn't understand how big or how ridiculous it was. And for a while, the only thing I thought made me feel a little bit safer was the metal detectors. Yeah, one of the first things you do in your book is explain why they don't do anything. I'm like, oh, well, there's that. And then it just kind of cascaded into everything else. 
it's like, especially when, especially when you outline how a lot of people respond to chaos. Like, remember, we were watching the Masculine Geek podcast, and I made the joke, how do you respond to chaos? Easy. You act like nothing happened, and don't give teachers any discretion, and just keep going in business as usual. Right, Doc? Right, right, right. Which is the mentality of a lot of these schools, too. It's like you were talking about, like, the flip charts that have a scenario, what to do if a plane falls from the sky. Our school, My school had that, too. It wasn't, like, a giant binder, but it was a giant, like, it was a flip chart that took up a decent amount of space that was hanging on the wall of every classroom. Right, right. Like, when I you removed it, like, the paint had faded beneath it and stuff like that. It looked like a big wall calendar. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I was the only one, like, I never saw a teacher's look at it. Like, once when we were lining up to go somewhere, I just looked at it because I was curious. But even then, it was pretty vague, too. It's like, if there's a, a fight, control the situation. I'm like, what the hell does that mean? What does that mean? Right. It's subjective. What does that mean? Or, like, the only thing that kind of makes sense is, like, stay calm. Like, the more out of control they are, the more, like, you know, emotionally, like, logical you have to be. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But it doesn't even give the teachers who don't feel that they have any discretion what they want, which is, like... A, B, C, what to do. So one time um, I was with the district and helping them assemble the flip charts, and we decided to add in an extra extra page on that, an extra tab, and it was um, flying saucer attack. And we labeled it like yeah. that, and we had it was, and then we actually did this. Um, it, but this was this was a spoof for situational awareness. Okay, this was, um, but. Basically, we had a picture of a flying saucer. Do, don't fire a gun at the flying saucer. You know, don't shine lights at the flying saucer. Do these types of things. Put these up in the classrooms, and then we had some activities where people had to use the the hang, the, the charts. And basically, no one no one recognized that this tab was there. Not one person came forward and said, "The flying saucer tab is that supposed to be there?" Um, <laughs> and it was the point of saying. No one looks at these things, right? And no one is going through or they're, they're just taking up space. It was just ridiculous. I think I still have one copy of that because it was pretty awesome. Um, yeah, that was, that, was, that, those, that was good times to do that. So pretty bad. flying saucer attack. Um, you know what I would do? I kind of want to get on like the school board back in my hometown just so I can add like a thing to the flip chart. What to do if Dr. Broden visits your school and that <laughs> <make> a presentation? <laughs> it's so crazy. Yeah, it's it, you know sometimes I'll the first thing if I go somewhere. I mean, I go somewhere that they invite me, so I usually apologize, saying this isn't the way we usually do things. Like these doors are locked, or this is whatever. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not evaluating you. I'm just trying to let's have a discussion and get a baseline to move forward. But they feel the immediate need to apologize. Um, for, you know, just what our kind of fatigued practices all over. It's, it's just, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, some people say I freak them out a little bit when, or when I present to people, you know, just they, they make a list. Um, Nick, I don't close my superintendents. When, I, when I'm instructing, the first thing they'll do is they'll start to, to be defensive of, well, this is why we do this or whatever. And then pretty soon they just get really nervous and I'm going to call my buildings and grounds person. We're going to check about these doors. Are they lockable? I'm like, I'm not here again. I'm, we're here to have a discussion and, you know, just your bigger things are going to be culture and taking some points forward. But um, I, people just, people realize, yeah, they're not as, the biggest thing is they just don't have fidelity in systems, right? They just, they're not locking doors or not doing the key things. And, oh man, 
it's it's crazy. But um, hey, thanks for for sharing um, and bringing up the the diagrams. I, the visuals really, I think, give a, a distinct perspective for people of one how easy it is to get a visual of a school. We go onto Google Maps or if you wanted to do a drone, but you could go into Google Maps. The fact that we have multiple entrances and exits into schools, how those um, look at different times of the day. And the big part too, students informing the school culture. So what happened? You know, First of all, they're doing the handbook thing with you. Here's the handbook and it's your responsibility to know it um, as far as students having input to, hey, you know what's really a problem around here? Fights, cupcake related fights. We've had nine of them. All right, cupcake-related fights. It's too much. Yeah. But things like, I mean, just we, coming forward, um, students saying, you know, the, the Beamer Bucks? Yeah, I don't want to redeem this, yeah, for uh, a school hat. Like, but I will redeem this for... to wear in school anyway. Team, which I can't wear in school, and I'd have to carry <laughs> around. So um, what I... what I, So it's just this part of as And you kind of talked about the freshmen being walled off. But it's this whole process of really walling off the input of the students to manage the school. And I, I kind of get that. Like, I kind of get why that has to happen, but that also fatigue systems and it just it, it promotes this thing, you know, why come forward? Why share information when they're not going to do anything about it anyway? You know, um, these are these are huge things. You're closer to this than most people that I have on my show um, in, in time because, I mean, this happened just a few years ago for you, so you're giving perspective. And then also, thank you so much for sharing the marketing aspect because as I, as I tell people, marketing school safety is really marketing downhill. People already yep. believe in whatever you're selling them, even if you created it an hour ago. Like, they're all, if you can just say, this is going to make you safer, they're not going to run you through 20 questions on why this will make you safer. If you give a few points and there's some remote chance, like, that this could, under some scenario of one in a billion, actually play out where it made you safer, then it's worth it. Um, so you're marketing downhill. It's frustrating for me because I see people just making a ton of money without making schools safe. Um, I see administrators pressured into buying things that they know don't make them safe. But they'll come to me and say, Dave, I don't want to go against the board because then I, I have to move. Superintendents, as you said, you know, turnover, right? Superintendents, principals. They don't want to move. They don't want to have, pull their kids out of school, go somewhere else because they've upset the school by saying, you know, we need to do more school culture. Um, it's really it's a, it's a weird situation. Do you even, like if someone said that to me, I'm like, do you even know what school culture is? Do you know what the students really think about all this? Yeah, that's the thing. Like, and it's that's worse what, than just not knowing your students, but thinking you do, that's even worse. We talk about these big safety grants, $100 million plus. If you write in a grant, you know, we're going to interview students. We're going to have student focus groups to really find out what they think about their school culture and all of that. That stuff doesn't get funded. If you write, we're going to put these films on windows to make them bullet resistant, that gets funded all the time, like any type of device, too. So we know culture, all of these things, you know, 2,000 students. Why would we not want to get the students more involved in, in just their overall safety and just their overall say in how their school operates versus they just come and it's dictated to them and it's a really alienating process and yeah and like the teacher who's told you who's honest and saying something happened you know someone came in here um yeah we're we're probably toast i mean this is just the way that that it is just crazy but which is 
And we wonder why these kids are most likely going to grow up to be adults that, like, can't think for themselves because they're afraid of getting fired if they exercise any discretion. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because um, it was uh, two years ago, a school district outside of Cleveland, parents in their, you know, mostly in their 30s had, had shut down a school trip to Washington, D.C. for their eighth grade students. And then the parents that didn't go along with this, I did a little more research into it. Um, the parents who initially didn't go along with it, they got pressure from the parents who said, we're not sending our eighth graders to D.C. Are you crazy? They could get there could be a terrorist attack or something. And they basically the parents that didn't agree and said, now, nah, you know, D.C., there's, there's going to be chaperones during the day. They're used to these trips. There's a whole program where they kind of connect in with other people over there. Those parents got shut down. Like the parents who were more vocal, who went to the board, and then they put pressure, and then the parents like just caved. And you're you're right; people aren't going to be thinking for themselves. They're not going to question things because, um, and it's this whole crazy thing. It's a microaggression now. I mean, microaggression. Um, someone goes against my opinion; it's a microaggression. You don't think? Uh, you know, you, you're saying we should do this. You're saying, and I don't know. I don't think so. And suddenly, it's not a debate; it's a microaggression. I actually, I actually present to people, Nick, that before I go in and present, I will be told, um, you know, we've told our staff that if they feel uncomfortable with any information being presented, they have the right to stand up and to leave. So don't feel bad by that. This is just our standard operating procedure. If we present any information, whether it be safety or grading or whatever, and if it makes them feel uncomfortable, they can leave. I'm like, what the hell? It's like, does, is... any student, does any like teacher or someone not have a right to leave? Especially with like a presentation. It's not like a mandatory training. Yeah, and it, it's not. And I and that happens more and more. And um, you know, people will will do that. And my counter to that is saying, I hope you would stay and be informed. You don't have to agree and maybe put some information forward if, if you don't agree and we can talk about it but no people as, as soon as it hits this wall of being uncomfortable they'll leave and if anybody tries to keep them in the mix any longer than they feel they need to be there then it's a microaggression you're forcing me to have this content um it, it is so bizarre uh it's so bizarre Nick. and sometimes i really think it's it's like south park kind of like the kids are the ones who know better and are, are smarter than the the staff in regards to this i mean probably know our school better than the staff yeah it's 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 crazy stuff so That's all right but anyway yeah, yeah it's a crazy world we live in it Sorry, is crazy I earlier i found like a there's like a pin in my jacket from when I got it altered. Wow. It was broken me in the arm. <laughs> when I graduated high school, uh, our valedictorian had just bought a suit and still had the tag sewn on the outside of the cuff as he's, as he's presenting. That was classic. Nice. So, yeah, this sport coat has had a lot of wear the last week. Um, I've got to get it down to the dry cleaner. But uh, I've learned if you Febreze a sport coat, you can get the life span to go way out on it but this thing i don't yeah after i've got to get it down to the cleaner because um yeah with the media events in the last week it's been kind of crazy but all right well um nick i want to thank you for being a guest on the safety doc podcast the purpose of the podcast you know inform people about personal and community safety but something absent from the podcast really was a perspective of someone who had 
not long ago been in a high school and understands how high school functions, not from a faculty standpoint, from a student standpoint. And then to couple that with the work that you're doing right now in marketing, um, just made this an extremely rich interview and really honest for people to try to to lift up the wool from their eyes of, okay, what's really going on? And what are the kids really thinking about this? So thank you so much for being a guest on the Safety Doc Podcast. Thank you to John Grant and the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California for supporting the show. 2 p.m. PST Daily, the 405 Media. Again, folks, it is our good friend. It is our marketing guru. Nick, how can people contact you? You're the guy to go to for marketing. Tell us more about that and your content. All right. So, well, you got a few options if you want to contact me. If you're interested in, like, hiring me for my marketing services or you just want some help, like, learning marketing, you can find me at nickshulander.com. So that's Nick spelled the usual way. Shulander spelled S-C-H-U-L-A-N-E-R.com. Um, you, I also have my YouTube channel, which is just my name, Nick Shulander, where occasionally I post some marketing lessons. Uh, if you're on Upwork and hire freelancers, you can also find me on Upwork by just typing in my name. Excellent. I've watched uh, many of your videos. I've learned from your videos. Um, and I, I'm going to post this information in the blog. I'll also post it in the description. I'll move it closer uh, to the to the start of the, the show also. But yeah, folks, if, if you're considering uh, marketing, especially, especially digital marketing, um, consider consider Nick because um, you, you want someone who knows what they're doing in, in this and they can make a big difference and just kind of sputtering around and, and trying to get some traction on your own. So, Nick, thank you for being on the Safety Doc Podcast. Thanks again, Doc, for having me. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.